Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Al Posamantier, who is the co-author of Effective Techniques to Motivate Mathematics Instruction. From the title, you might guess that it is aimed at mathematics teachers, which it is. However, the techniques and strategies discussed in the book can be effectively employed by a much larger group of people, and one who have considerably more influence with students. Those people are parents, who play as large or larger a role in their children's education than do teachers. Al is a retired professor and dean from CCNY, the City College of New York. Al, welcome again to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Although this book is nominally dedicated to mathematics teachers, it's incredibly useful for parents who want to get their children interested in mathematics. That's not always an easy sell to parents who are often uncomfortable with math. Do you know any good ways to get around this? Yeah, I think the key factor is that parents should, even if, uh, should not indicate their dislike for mathematics. Look, most people are proud to have been lousy in mathematics in school and still have been successful in life. And uh, since math is the one area, the one subject they take from kindergarten up through high school, um, it's a... Uh, a subject that's required and that a lot of people for many reasons, which we don't need to go into now, don't feel very comfortable with, largely because their teachers didn't take the time to make the subject interesting, which is essentially a, a part of the book that I've just finished, where the key factor in a teacher's lesson is how you begin it and how you motivate the instruction. However, to get back to your question, and I'm sure we'll cover the other part as we move along, to answer your question, I think the key factor for parents is to not ever indicate to their children that A, they don't like math, or B, they didn't do well in math, because that gives the kids a very low uh, area of uh, expectation, which is really counterproductive. In other words, my, my favorite example, student comes home with two test results, a 75 in English and a 75 in mathematics. With the result of 75 in English, the parents, is, parents are usually distraught. How can you get such a horrible grade in uh, English? Can't you speak the language? Can't you read? What's the matter with you? With the math test, am I glad you passed? I didn't do better myself. And so the kid's expectation for math is much lower than that for English, and it follows right along through. Unless you have a teacher in the schools who is, A, not teaching to the test, and B, makes sure that every single lesson begins with some kind of a motivational activity. And that's what this book is intending to do, to provide teachers with a, a slew of, of uh, techniques that they can use to uh, begin a lesson in a very exciting and motivating fashion. 
I think it does an excellent job of that. And one of the strategies in the book is use recreational mathematics. I'd modify this slightly for parents to use mathematics that's involved in recreation. I've always felt that because mathematics plays such a large role in sports and games, this is a great way to go about this. Well, you're right. And there are ways you can uh, apply mathematics to, uh, let's take uh, uh, soccer. Where is the optimum spot along the sideline where you have the largest angle towards the goal? I mean, that's a very nice little uh, technique um, and uses nothing but very simple elementary geometry. Or you can use uh, how how do you hit a billiard ball against a cushion to go to a desired position? Again, it's using uh, reflection. You could put a mirror along the sideline and it, it's very simple to do. However, we don't need to make mathematics interesting solely by showing its usefulness, we can make mathematics interesting by showing the beautiful things that are encased within the subject matter. For example, there are friendly numbers. Friendly numbers are two numbers where the sum of the divisors of one is equal to the other and vice versa, such as the numbers 220 and 284. If you take all the divisors of 220, that is the numbers that divide evenly into 220, and add them all up, you'll get 284. And if you do that for the number 284, they will add up to 220. And those are known as friendly numbers. So you can entertain them that way. Or, for example, we uh, one of the typical questions in the uh, elementary algebra curriculum has always been find what we call uniform motion problems, where uh, one train goes at a certain speed, another one goes another speed. How long will it take the first train to be caught up by the second train, uh, and so on? And these are very common. They go back over a hundred years or more. But there are some cute problems you can do, which is which are really entertaining. For example, supposing you have two trains, one in, from coming from Washington, say at sixty miles per hour, and one going to New York from New York towards Washington uh, in the opposite direction, of course. Uh, at uh, 80 miles an hour, uh, just making these numbers up. Uh, and they're ca- traveling towards each other on the same track. And there's a little bee that's very fast that goes at 200 miles an hour. And it flies from the front of one train to the other, back and forth and back and forth, zigzagging along the way until it gets crushed by the two trains that smash into one another. How, long, how far will that train, have, how, how far will that bee have traveled in the time it took the trains to smash? And the kids go crazy trying to figure it out. How do you figure out that zigzag path? And it's very simple because all they have to do is know the basic principle, which is the topic of this lesson, of course, of that you that rate times time equals distance. So we're looking for the distance. We know the rate. We're given that. And the time it takes for the two trains to smash is also easily figured out. So those two, the product of those two gives you the distance that that be as traveled or rules for divisibility are always entertaining that you can uh, look at a number and see if it's divisible by three if the sum of the digits of that number is divisible by three so there are lots of entertaining things that you can do within the subject matter without going to look at applications of the subject matter i know that it's very chic these days to 
show how mathematics can be used in everyday life, and surely it can. There's no question about that, which, by the way, is a topic for a book coming out next year, but we'll talk about that perhaps later on. In any case, recreational mathematics is very important as a beginning to a lesson. However, and here's the key factor, it is not to dominate the lesson. It's to lead into the lesson, because if it dominates the lesson, then it, it's counterproductive. Then they say, oh, now we have to go and do the stuff that's required. No, it has to lead into the lesson. Otherwise, it is counterproductive. Al, I can see your point there. Um, one of my favorite books when I was growing up was George Gamow's One, Two, Three, Infinity. This book used some of the strategies you recommend, and it sure stimulated my interest in mathematics. How did you decide on the strategies? Did you involve them over? Did you evolve them over your teaching career? Yes, exactly correct. Um, I always felt that it was a teacher's obligation to make the kids want to learn the material of that day's lesson. And I always thought, how can I make the students want to learn, not sit, sit there because they have to sit there, they're assigned to that class, but that they are actually eager to want to, and, and that was my task. I spent the first six years of my, my career, which now is over half a century long, um, I'm still going along, um, teaching in a high school in the Bronx, New York. And uh, I taught from the most gifted kids to the slow kids. And in each case, I was always concerned with how can I make the students, regardless of their ability, want to learn that which I was going to present in that particular lesson. I think that's, you know, I think that's probably universal to all subjects. When I look at the uh, various courses that I took over the years, obviously I was more interested in math and science than the other courses, but the history courses that I remember were not what the subject was, whether it was European history or American history, because to me all history is just sort of pretty much the same, but the teachers who were really into it and really stimulated my desire to learn. And I think that for some reason, people feel that's more difficult in mathematics, but I feel exactly the opposite. I feel it's easier in mathematics because mathematics permeates everything. Well, you're right. The thing is this, there are people who have a natural penchant towards mathematics. We're not going to talk about them right now. They, they, they will function regardless of who their teacher is. However, the vast majority of the people need to be turned on to them. And I would say the vast majority can be turned on to mathematics. And I will say this, and I think most of your listeners will probably agree, that the area of uh, their career, their specialty, that they have embraced throughout their life is a result of having had a teacher at perhaps a secondary level, if you will, who has made a difference, who has motivated. If a person's interested in law, somewhere along the line, there was somebody who turned them on to that subject matter as a teacher. And I always felt it was my obligation to try as best I could to turn kids on to mathematics, whether they became mathematicians, math teachers, uh, actuaries, or accountants, or just, or even lawyers. Lawyers are people who have to think logically, and uh, I would like to think that we think somewhat logically in mathematics. So that's where my motivation came from. You know, I remember that 
it probably 25, 30 years ago, the American scientists published an article in which they surveyed 50 people who were, uh, who were professional scientists. And they asked them what made them become a scientist. And something like 75% of them said at one stage or another of their career, they ran into a teacher who got them interested. And even though I feel that in general, the environment that the parents provide basically is going to, as you stated at the outset, you don't want the parents to provide a negative environment for the children. You want the parents basically to say to your, their children, children. We want you to accept education as a whole, to enjoy it, to do well in it. But the core question of what's going to happen to you, very much a function of a truly inspiring teacher. And it's probably true for all other subjects as well, that a large number of people pursue a particular career, not because, not so much because of the parental environment, but because they had someone to inspire them en route. Might not necessarily have been a teacher, but more likely to be in math or science. Yep, I agree. Uh, I know in my case that was certainly true. I had a teacher in high school who was phenomenal. Uh, he had written the textbooks. At that time, I think they were published by uh, Heath Company, and uh, they were used throughout the city of New York. He was just wonderful. He was so excited about what, everything he did that it was contagious. And I think the teacher's behavior in a classroom, not just the material. See, we're presenting here in this book a, a, a tremendous amount of ideas with, along with uh, uh, applications and uh, examples and discussion and so on. But that's only a portion of it. The other portion is the enthusiasm that the teacher shows in the classroom. That's critical and essential. Um, I agree. And I think it's always one of the reasons that uh, um, people sometimes tend to think that math teachers are sort of a dull lot because they tend to think of math teachers as facing the board and doing equations. But the best teachers I ever had, um, no matter what the subject, uh, they were enthusiastic about it. They had a passion for it. And I'd certainly hope that one of the things that your book does is because it, it is primarily um, aimed at teachers is that the teachers who read it realize how important motivation is. It's more important than actually knowing the X's and O's. If you screw up a problem, the kids will forgive you because everybody makes mistakes. But if you just sit there and drone away and make the class boring for them, they're never going to forgive you and they're never going to like math. Right. I agree. Anyway, uh, one of the the strategies in your book is called is use practical problems. And admittedly, your book is aimed at secondary school teachers. But I feel that it's important to get children at the primary school level um, interested in mathematics. And using practical problems ties in with making children comfortable with arithmetic. A trip to the store, for example, can be used to encourage facility in arithmetic by getting children to estimate the amount of the total bill. Right, right. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's certainly true. But um, there are so many uh, other kinds of uh, motivation. The practical problems really depends on the, where, the pro where the kids are. For example, uh, in the older days, there was, a, and probably still in some textbooks, the problem of uh, Johnny can mow a lawn in two hours, his father can mow a lawn in one hour, how long will it take 
the kids to, uh, two to mow the lawn together. And the kid in the inner city says, what's a lawn? So <laughs> in other words, it's got to be uh, practical problems need to really be practical and realistic for the audience. And that's something that a teacher has to select based on the student population that he or she has. So there, that's something that has to come from the gut. And it has to be something that the teacher really believes in so that he presents it in a, an appropriately enthusiastic way. Um, I think that's very good. And also, it's interesting that you told that story about what's a lawn, because I, uh, uh, when I was younger, I had a friend who was a middle school teacher in California, and they encountered the following situation. They had a standardized test in which they gave them the letters A-C-T-O, and you were supposed to rearrange them into a word. And the correct word was coat. However, all the kids in this particular district used T-A-C-O, taco, <laughs> because because it was basically a Hispanic district and they didn't get credit for it, even though it's a perfectly legitimate word. And so it's, it's amazing how often problems that you think occur just in mathematics occur in other disciplines as well. Maybe one of the reasons that mathematics is more universal than we suspect. Yeah, that's certainly true. You know, some of our listeners will have children who are high school students, and that's the uh, that's the group of teachers at which your book is aimed. And there's a danger that, especially with parents who are uncomfortable with mathematics, at this stage, the parents will be unable to help the children. Do you feel this is true? And if so, what suggestions can you make? Well, first thing is, the book is actually aimed at the secondary level, which includes the upper levels of middle school as well. But the answer to your question is this. The one thing the parent should never say is, I don't know what you're doing. Because that immediately tells the kids that what I'm doing now can't be that important if my parents, who are successful, will say, uh, have come that far without knowing what I'm doing. Or that they didn't care when they learned it, so they forgot it. So that's the first thing you don't say. What you try to do is you try to have the student explain as much as he or she can about what that assignment is all about and look interested and, and ask the proper questions, not like, I don't know what you just said, I don't understand that, I don't understand this material, but say, could you say that again and make it a little bit more clear? In other words, let the student try to explain what he or she has as a, a homework assignment or a topic they're learning, and and the parent needs to behave as a proper audience, not as an ignorant audience. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing. Leave me alone with that, which is so, so counterproductive. Do you know, it's uh, what you said is very important because one of the things that I've encountered, because I, uh, I taught courses in mathematics education. Well, that's not really true. I taught math for elementary school teachers. And one, uh, I also was the graduate advisor at my school. And so what I had to do is we had a whole bunch of uh, students who would come in and they'd be teaching other courses. And I would say, 
the measure of what makes a good teacher is not how well you understand it, but how well you're able to, you're able to make other people understand it. And what you're asking the children to do here is exactly in line with what I told the teaching associates to do. What you want to do is as you explain it to other people, the ideas become clearer in your mind. And so what the parent is actually doing by asking the child to explain the material in another way to them is he's help he or she is helping the student clarify their understanding of the material. So I think that's great advice. That's true. But there's a lot to be said for when you speak out even if a personal problem, when you speak out a problem, it forces you to crystallize your thoughts to make it understandable to the listener. And that's a really significant learning process. Okay, let's get to some of the specific strategies in the book. Um, The first strategy in the book is indicate a void in students' knowledge. You point out that students have a desire to complete their knowledge of a subject. What are some good examples of this? Well, let me just try to explain how I came to that, and then you'll see how that works. Um, If you are a philatelist, stamp collector, and you have, let's say, the 1938 uh, collection of United States postage stamps, which were the presidents of the United States. And the one cent was, of course, the uh, George Washington, two cents was Adams, and so on. Three cent was Jefferson, I remember that one. Yep, yep. <laughs> and four was Purple. Patterson, and so on. And they were in, in order. Um, and you got that collection to you've you've gone to collect it and collect it and so on, and you're missing one stamp. To get that one stamp, you do anything because that will complete your collection, and that's the kind of thing that is a I think it's a personal um, motivational um, characteristic where if you are if you feel that if you get this one last piece, you will have completed something. And the notion of completing something is a sense of uh, satisfaction and it's highly motivating. So for example, let's say I was going to teach a lesson um, in the second algebra course or whenever of finding a trigonometric function of an angle greater than 90 degrees. And uh, I let them, I may give the students at the beginning some simple questions like find the cosine of 30, the sine of 60, and I'd say, find the sine of 120. What? And they'll say, oh, I can do this one. I can do this one. Wait a minute. I don't get this. I, I, I can't do that. It's not in a right triangle or whatever. And well, that's the lesson of the day. So now I'd say, well, what do you think we ought to do today, class? Oh, we have to find a figure out how to find the sign of 120. Well, that's exactly what that takes one minute, two minutes. And I've got them turned on because now they see we know how to do this, this, and this, but we don't know how to do this other thing, which would complete or give me a more complete feeling for the, uh, for the technique of fine trigonometric functions. That's just one simple example. And it could be done in any number of areas of mathematics. 
Yeah, and as a matter of fact, that's a fabulous example because I've used that when I teach pre-calculus in order to introduce trigonometry of the unit circle. Yeah. It's amazing, Al, how, I, you know, you and I are, you know, well, we're of similar ages, but different uh, different portions of the country. But nonetheless, we've come to some of similar conclusions, possibly many similar conclusions. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of other teachers have too, but it's nice that you've codified these things. So especially for beginning instructors who haven't had the experience that we have had, which, you know, half a century, um, it's nice to have this, this book available. And the second strategy in the book, Discover a Pattern, is pervasive in mathematics. What are some of your favorite patterns for discovery and how can parents help in this process? Well, you know, that's a good question because there are mathematics is is a field of patterns. I mean, anything that doesn't follow a pattern probably doesn't really fall much into mathematics or everything we do can be put into a pattern of some sort. But first, kids need to understand that they experience patterns all the time. For example, if you're in Manhattan, and I hope some of your listeners have been to Manhattan, and you get out of a subway train and you're looking for a certain address, and it's, um, let's say, 245 such and such a street. Well, you know that all the odd numbers are on one side and the even numbers are on the other side. And so automatically, you know, there's a pattern and you know you've got to be on that side of the street to get the number. And then they, then you look which way the numbers are going up or down and you can find the address by a pattern so patterns are everywhere now it's very nice to let's say we're going to introduce negative exponents and so we would say for example um we all know what three squared is that's nine and three to the first power is three and we they should know that three to the zero power is one and now what happens to three to the minus one well, if you notice, we have 9, 3, 1, each time divided by 3. Divide the 9 by 3 to get 3. Divide the 3 by 3 to get 1. Well, the next step would be divide the 1 by 3 to give you 1 third. And divide the uh, 3 to the minus 2 power would give you 1 ninth. So it's the pattern that, that would tell them how to get, would, would give them a, a real good feeling about negative powers. And they will have almost taught themselves that lesson through the motivation. And then you just use that as it would be done. Or you can show how sometimes patterns can be a little bit upsetting. For example, supposing you have the sequence of numbers 1, 2, 4, 8, 16. Well, you think the next one would be 32. But there is a sequence of numbers where the next number is not 32. It's 31. And you can show any number of ways why the 31 works and it, it it's an it it's where the whole notion of what patterns are makes a big difference you know discover a pattern ties in neatly with the idea of proof which you discuss under another strategy show some of the gee whiz aspects of mathematics and that's one of the things that got me originally interested in mathematics one of the gee whiz aspects that impressed me early about mathematics was the idea that proof can establish an infinite number of truths because you certainly can't establish an infinite number of truths one at a time. You just haven't got forever. That's true. That's true. Um, the, the gee whiz thing actually um, encompasses just about everything you do there because 
even where we show them a void in their knowledge, gee whiz, we don't know what that is. Or gee whiz, isn't that interesting about friendly numbers? Or, you know, um, if let's say you want to show how algebra can explain um, arithmetic um, phenomena, and you show how this, uh, what's called um, a, a crazy cancellation can be done. For example, if you have the fraction 16 64ths, and you cancel the sixes, you get the right answer. You get one fourth. Or if you have 19 over 95, and you cancel the nines, you get one fifth, which is also correct. Or if you have 26 over 65, and you cancel the sixes, you get two fifths, which is also correct. Or 49 over 98, and you cancel the nines, and you get one half, which is also correct. And you say, now, wait a minute, is this a new way of reducing fractions? And the answer is absolutely not. And the question then is, how do you know? And when does this work? And why does this work? And that's where you lead into a lesson that, that where students experience how algebra can explain arithmetic phenomena. So yeah, it's a gee whiz kind of thing that leads into a, a very nice lesson. You know, one of the early opportunities for gee whiz occurs with number patterns because children discover number patterns as well. I remember when I was uh, uh, when I was younger, I discovered, although obviously it had been discovered long before me, the number pattern that one plus two plus four plus one plus two is three, which is one less than the next power of two. One plus two plus four is seven, which is one less than the next power of two. One plus two plus four plus eight is fifteen, which is one less than the uh, than the next power of two. And I think that uh, children become aware and interested in number patterns. Uh, number patterns, and it helps children become comfortable with arithmetic. And that raises what I think is an important question. How important do you think arithmetic competency is in helping a student succeed in mathematics? Well, (laughs) that's a very good question. Frankly, um, if we look at some of the great mathematicians in history, like uh, Carl Friedrich Gauss, the famous uh, 18th century uh, mathematician, well, 18th, 19th century, um, he was known to be an arithmetic marvel, that he would be able to do calculations in his head and see number patterns that other people couldn't see. So in, in the extreme situation, yes, you have a fellow there who came to discover many mathematical um, concepts and ideas uh, because he was able to see things that others weren't able to see. So there was an arithmetic advantage to that. In today's world, obviously, uh, the students are very dependent on calculators. And they go right to the calculator. If you ask them what, uh, what six times eight, bingo, they'll go to the calculator and get the answer. Yet there is something to be said for knowing number facts uh, because they allow you to get a deeper insight into the patterns of numbers, which is not to say that if I think of six times eight, that I have to think of, well, uh, uh, three times eight is 24, and six is twice that. No, you should be able to know it exactly. Although today's teaching does uh, uh, try to push them into breaking up one of the factors and, and then doubling it or whatever. So I think... I think certain, to put it this way, 
The more tools you have to do your work in mathematics, the better off you are. A carpenter who's skilled with his tools will do better than a carpenter who's not skilled with his tools and just knows what has to be done. So I would say the, more, the better you are at arithmetic, the better your tool uh, uh, collection will be. You know, that's a great analogy with a carpenter. Um, you know, I especially like your example of how to discover that pi is greater than three, which you discuss under the strategy presented challenge. Maybe you could just briefly explain that to our audience. Well, uh, there are a number of things with pi that, 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 I mean, I wrote a book about pi, so it's one of my little favorite topics. Um, one thing you can do is uh, take a look at the tennis balls in, in a cylindrical a tennis ball uh, can, if you will, and know that the um, ratio of the circumference to diameter, which is uh, uh, which is pi, uh, c divided by d is pi, um, and and compare how those three balls uh, fit into the can and so on. You can play with that, and there's a, there are a lot of things you can do. What I found very interesting is for kids to understand the concept of pi and what it really means is to take a toilet paper core, the cardboard core from a, uh, a roll of toilet paper, and ask the students, what's longer, the circumference of the edge on the top or bottom, or the height of the column, of the cylinder? And most people will say, oh, well, a cylinder, look how long that is. And I say, well, let's measure it up by looking at what the diameter is of that, and just take a stick or a pen or a pencil and mark off the length of the uh, of the diameter of that uh, um, um, cross section, the, the top, and then measure it off. And they will notice that the circumference is got to be, let's say, three times that. It's more. It's three point one four, but let's say it's three. And so you measure off three times the length along that, that core, and you find it's much longer than the height of that cylinder, which is uh, sort of an optical illusion or counterintuitive, if you will. And uh, it, it, it's very impressive, and they get a feel for what is this thing pi? What is this pi all about? So it's, it's just there are a lot of things you can do with it. I mean, uh, you, you can also, if you really want to, uh, one of the things I talk about is telling a sto telling a story, and there's so many stories you can tell in uh, in in mathematics that are fun. For example, um, in the ancient world, um, it, it's felt that the earliest approximation of pi was three, because in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Book of Kings, there's a description of Solomon's temple or or courtyard. And in the courtyard is a fountain, and the fountain is 30 cubits around and 10 cubits across, cubit being the length of the fingertip to your elbow, roughly speaking. Well, 30 divided by 10 is 3. So all the history of math books at one point said the earliest approximation of pi in the Bible is 3. And uh, together with a colleague of mine, we discovered that there was a uh, well-known rabbi in the 1700s who was also a mathematician who used a procedure called gematria, where the biblical scholars would analyze the uh, scriptures 
and by letting the letters of a word uh, take on the numbers that they would have, because numbers in, in, in the Hebrew were also letters. And uh, when they took the word, it, the sentence that uh, describes that uh, uh, the dimensions of that pool, um, they found that there was one word that was spelled with three letters. And then that exact same sentence, word for word, appeared in the book of Chronicles with the same word spelled with two letters. And this rabbi said, let's take the value of those two words and divide them. And he divided those two, which was not an uncommon procedure. And uh, when he divided them, he got 1.0472. And if you multiply that by three, you get pi correct to four <laughs> places, which was unheard of in those days. And frankly, um, it's a lovely story. And we, we published it in uh, 1984. And since then, the math history of math books include that little bit that the biblical uh, uh, value was uh, 3.1416. But uh, you tell a little story like that, or for example, you can also tell a story about President Garfield. You say, everybody know about President? Yeah, he was President of the United States. Well, did you know that he was also known for having proved the Pythagorean theorem? What? The Pythagorean theorem? Yes, while he was a member of Congress. He proved it and published it in the New England uh, Mathematics Journal. And it's a lovely proof that's so simple to show a high school uh, geometry class so that you tell stories like this. And, of course, not the way I'm doing it now. You build it up and you tell it as you tell sure. a story. And I always told teachers when they're trying to tell a story, don't try to rush through it to get into the lesson, but tell it as though you're going to tell someone a joke. When people tr tell someone a joke, they, they try to uh, enhance it and embellish it and try to bring you into the situation so that the punchline really gets you. Well, that's the same way you have to tell a story when you're going to tell a story that you want to use as a motivational device in mathematics. I think that's an excellent suggestion. And while we're talking about the idea of uh, looking at various aspects of the educational process, uh, Student-teacher conferences are a staple of secondary school education. I think they may be of primary school education, too. Um, although I'm not sure it qualifies as a strategy, certainly not from the standpoint of your book, um, do you have any suggestions that might enable both the teacher and the parents to get on the same page as far as helping the student? Well, the one thing the parents should do is, in a, in a friendly way, of course, is to determine what the parents... Uh, the teacher needs to determine what the parent's um, attitude towards mathematics is. If the parent says, you know, Johnny is having trouble and I can't help because I was terrible in this. Well, there's already, th that's pretty clear what the teacher needs to talk to the parent about, similar to what we talked about earlier. On the other hand, if the parent says, I'm disappointed because I was always great in mathematics and Johnny's not doing so well and I'm frustrated and angry <laughs> at him. And then you've got to take a different tack. So I think the key factor here is not that the teacher is to tell the parent what to do, but the teacher needs to determine where the parent is coming from, as we say, and to be able to deal with each parent from the perspective that he is shown in the conversation that he has with the teacher. 
You know, I think that's fabulous advice because um, I had never really thought of it in perhaps in that fashion. But I've known people, uh, of course, because there are generally more people who are not so good at math than there are people who are good at math. Certainly, I was familiar with a lot of experiences of uh, the parent, you know, the parent producing a negative environment for the child, as you suggested at the start of the program. But also, I have some colleagues who are obviously because they're math teachers. They're very good at mathematics and um, they don't, um, uh, they produce sort of the same feeling of inferiority in their children that if they happen to be terrific, you know, if they happen to be professional athletes and the kid stumbles all over himself on the playing field, um, the children, uh, the child obviously gets a very uncomfortable feeling. And so it's, it's something that, uh, it's something that you're right, that the teacher should realize where the parents are coming from before making suggestions. And if I were still a teacher, I would say, Jim, he's talking to you. <laughs> because I know that I've made that mistake in dealing with parents. So thank you very much. Okay. And in going through your book, one of, uh, I, just like you have pet topics, I think every teacher has a pet topic. And one of my pet topics is percentages, which are often a source of considerable confusion. And I'm glad your book had some suggestions in this area, perhaps because percentages are often a subject of confusion for parents as well. Maybe you can, uh, maybe you can outline a couple of those. Well, I think the biggest problem with something related to percentages and I've noticed this uh, as something relative to other cultures. We are particularly poor in understanding proportions, ratios, and which is related to percentages, which is the same, essentially the same thing. Uh, I've noticed that as in, compare, in comparison to Europeans. When I'm in Europe amongst people who are not educators even, or politicians perhaps, or whatever, they can think proportionally so much better than their counterparts could in the United States. And I've often asked, why is that? And I've spoken to people who've written curriculum in Austria and Germany and England, and I don't really get a, a clear answer as to, well, I just write this and this is the way we do it. And I, they don't know why they're doing it. And they, they, it just happens to be what it is. Well, uh, I, was a part of the small team that wrote the uh, mathematics standards for the state of New York. And uh, we made every effort we could to try to introduce the concept of proportionality as early as possible. Now, there are things that are sort of counterintuitive and it also help understand the concept of proportions and percentages and so on. Supposing you go into a store and they have a sign, 10% discount on everything. And the next day, uh, there's a sign that apologizes. Uh, we made a mistake. Uh, we're, we, we're forced to increase our price by 10% on the next day. And everybody would think that they're back to where they started from, but they're not. And that's what's called successive discounts or increases, where a 10% increase and a 10% decrease worked on top of one another, do not put you back to the same place. Or, for example, um, two stores are competing with one another, uh, say John's Bargain Store and Cheap Charlie's. And, uh, and one puts a big sign out, 30% discount on all our items. 
Well, Cheap Charlie's has has a 10% year-round, and John's Bargain Store wanted to beat him. So Cheap Charlie says, well, we got to put a new sign out now, 20% on top of our already discounted prices of 10% to show that they're now supposedly equivalent to the other one. They're not. The 30% is still 2% better than the uh, the other one. And why is that? And, and so on. And that gives kids a real insight into what percentages and proportions are and how they use in everyday life. You know, that reminds me of a story that I just told my students the other day, because like you, I'm retired or emeritus, but possibly like, uh, unlike you, I still teach, uh, I still teach part time. And I had a very similar situation arise that actually turned out to be a legal case in California some 25 or 30 years ago. Um, there was a store that um, issued coupons in which the coupon said 10% dis- um, you have an additional 10% discount by presenting this coupon. And the store had a sale in which the merchandise was reduced by 30%. And someone came in, bought something for, let's just say, $100, because that's easy to work with. And uh, and the 30% discount reduced the price to $70. And the customer presented the 10% coupon and said, now the price should be $60, because 10% of the original price of $100 is $10. And when you add that on to the uh, discount of $30, the new price should be $60. And the store said, no, no, no. Um, That 10% discount is to be applied after the 30% discount has been taken. So the $70 price was reduced by 10% to $63. And the customer sued. This went up to the, uh, this went up to, uh, I think it became part of case law. And I regret to say that I do not know how the case was decided. Um, I tell my students that probably the side with the best <laughs> and most expensive lawyers wins. But what I suspect is that even without the lawyers, the store would have one because the 10% discount is obviously meant to apply to the price at the register, not the original price that it was yesterday or five days ago or a year ago. So it's the same idea, but it actually became a legal case. Right. Well, I tell you, I, I, I said this, I've been able to do this comparison with the European uh, schools because I've been very involved over several decades now with European education, European schools, cooperations with universities and so on. Matter of fact, right now I'm uh, uh, sort of chief uh, liaison for international academic affairs at Long Island University in New York, where I am trying to build bridges between New York and many cities and countries around the world in India, Europe, and Europe, I'm doing it with uh, England, um, which is still in Europe, I guess, um, Berlin, Vienna, and so on. And uh, come into contact with a lot of these educators in, in various fields. And I always see that there's a much better uh, command of proportional thinking there amongst the non-mathematicians uh, than there is here. So I, I feel pretty confident about that. And I, I still have not figured out what they do at the elementary level that's so significantly stronger than what we do. Well, one of the things that you just referred to is cultural differences. And 
I know that there's a general perception that the Orientals do it better in general than Westerners do. And um, because uh, we know that if you look at the uh, scores on the standardized on the standardized math exams, um, usually the Oriental countries come in very high. And do you think that's a cultural thing or the way they teach mathematics or or do you have any feelings about this? Well, it's a difficult question. You know, my, my prejudice would have been a little bit differently. I would have said there's something in the Hungarian culture that has that must have created some of the most the strongest mathematicians of the 20th century seem to have come out of Hungary. And I said to myself, what the heck do they do in Hungary that produces these marvelous, you know, Paul Erdős and, and von Neumann and Teller and, and so on, all came out of Hungary at one time or another. And th these were really the superstars, <clears throat> I mean, in, in, a, in the most genuine way. Uh, as far as Asian students are concerned, um, I find here in New York, that there is a tremendous support at home for their education in general. And uh, there are also, if you go into communities where a, a number of Asian families live, you'll find that there are storefront support systems <clears throat> for mathematics. And these kids go on a weekend to get help, even if they're doing well. So if you're going to be a student uh, that excels it may be a function of how much preparation you do and maybe not necessarily innate ability. It, very difficult the way we test kids to determine whether their good performance on tests is a result of practice or of innate intelligence. It's probably very, very difficult. I mean, I can determine whether a, per, a student has that real gift and it comes up so so rarely but when it does you can determine from the way the student solves a problem it's typically not typical uh not no pun intended and uh it's it's it shows to my mind a, a level of genius many of these kids are also socially not that um properly adjusted because i think one goes the other it's amazing, isn't it? I agree with I, you. I often say that if you look at the geniuses in history, whether it's Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner, or whoever, these were all people who were not socially well um, synchronized with the rest of society. They were all outcasts in one way or another. Not necessarily bad, but different. And uh, even Einstein was not you know, a, a very uh, typical social being. But that's... Uh, topic for another day, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess one more strategy and then we'll uh, then we'll wrap it up. Um, one of the, the one of the strategies in the book is promoting mathematical curiosity, and that's important on several different levels, especially in an early age, because I think curiosity is strongest when you're young and curiosity can often be related to mathematics. I think that's a way to encourage mathematical development. Yeah, well, there are so many topics that lend themselves to further exploration that are not necessarily part of the curriculum, as it were, like you find them, you wouldn't find them in a textbook. And these things can really be exciting. For example, the Fibonacci numbers. Uh, the Fibonacci numbers are not part of the curriculum, but if a teacher is aware of them, 
there is an endless number of applications and 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 things that can be discovered there that where you could just have the kids go home and say here are these numbers one one two three five eight thirteen etc where every pair of number starting with one one you add each of the last two and get the next one and those are the Fibonacci numbers but they there's as I say an endless number of applications there's not a field in science investment, nature, where they don't pop up. Uh, matter of fact, I wrote a book about the Fibonacci numbers. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually, the, the, the thing you just mentioned now is something that I felt very strongly about because there are so many things that are not part of the curriculum that can be very easily explained and shown and, and, and motivating kids in school. Matter of fact, a book I've done, which is finished now, but being edited, coming out in uh, early 17, is just about that. All the mathematics your teacher forgot to tell you. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, an endless amount. I mean, when I, just about the Fibonacci numbers, there's a Fibonacci association that has a quarterly journal, and that's been going on since 1963. So mathematicians since 1963 have found enough material that they keep filling up these quarterly journals, and uh, it's still going strong. So that's, to my mind, almost the definition of an endless. Yeah, um, I'd like to remind our uh, our listeners that we're talking with Al Pazimentier, who's the co-author of Effective Techniques to Motivate Mathematics Instruction. And for those parents who've been interested, that's the book to pick up. Um, Al, how can people get in touch with you? Well, um, I guess in today's world, the best way is to email me. My private email number uh, or address is asp1818 at gmail.com. Or if you are able to spell my name, it's alfred.posimenteer at liu.edu. Both work, and I check them regularly every day. Okay, yes, I know you do, because when I write you an email, I get an answer very, very rapidly. If if Uh, your listeners give me their telephone number, I'll be happy to call them so that it's easier just to give them the email address now, and then I can speak with them if that's the way they want to communicate. Well, I hope they don't ask you to solve homework problems that their kids are give them, which are difficult. <laughs> anyway, Al, thank you so much. And um, I want to, want to talk to you when, uh, uh, when all the, math- the mathematics that your teacher forgot to tell you, when that book comes up, I certainly think I want to hear about it. And I think our listeners will, too. Okay, well, thank you. It'd be my pleasure to talk with you again. <laughs>